Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another very important episode, two in a row for Making Sense, Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. And Jeff recently wrote a three-part series explaining why our central bank, the Federal Reserve. Jeff, does this apply to other central banks as well? Bank of Japan, European Central Bank? Unfortunately, yes. Why our central banks, all of them, mostly all of them, uh, are no longer lenders of last resort, but markets of last resort. A profound change, as Jeff explains, a profound change. And he makes a point, you know, we didn't have any congressional hearings, any parliamentary hearings. It just happened quietly. And we're going to bring it to your attention. And how we're going to do this is we're going to discuss this infographic, which is wonderful. I love it when Jeff brings out the fire and the unicorns. This is the narrative. <laughs> Hopefully not unicorns on fire though, right? <laughs> uh, let's keep that in the, our back pocket. That'll yeah. keep the audience. Will the unicorns be on fire by the end of this episode? This infographic basically is the mainstream narrative. And what we're gonna do in part one, this is gonna be a three-part series here, part one, what is a central bank? What should a central bank be? Then part two, we're going to talk about one, two, and three that you see here in, the, um, in this graphic. And then we're going to come back to part three. We're going to finish off. We're going to talk about part four, part five, and then what really happened, which is not at all this infographic. Jeff, let us start at the beginning almost the beginning, the Federal Reserve, 1914, if I remember. Not too long after that, we had a Great Depression. And a few years later, and by few, I mean decades, it was November 2002, and Ben Bernanke, not yet the Federal Reserve Chairman, but well-known and considered an expert on the Great Depression, was giving a speech and lauding Milton Friedman and making a promise. What was happening? Yeah, it was November of 2002, on the occasion of Milton Friedman's 90th birthday. And Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz wrote A Monetary History in 1963, which essentially gave uh, economists and anybody interested in what, hap what really happened in the Great Depression, the reason for the Great Depression being what it was, which was the fact that the Federal Reserve really, 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 really screwed up. And what, what Ben Bernanke was saying, and he was a governor of the Fed at the time in November 2002. He wasn't yet a chairman, but he was... He was part of the FOMC. What he said was, you're right, Milton, we did it. We screwed up. We won't do it again. That's what he said in November of 2002 in one of those, I mean, this is more egregious than subprime is contained. It was, hey, we've studied your work. We know what happened. We understand bank crisis and what's going on. And because of that, because of your work, Milton, because of my work as Ben Bernanke, the Great Depression scholar of most, you know, most uh, most people know of when they think about the Great Depression, we will never allow something like that to happen ever again. November 8th, 2002. It would have been amazing if we could have gone to him and told him in less than five years with you at the helm, only the third worldwide depression would begin and a great monetary crisis would begin, one which would not end by the end of your term. It would still continue. I think he would be dumbstruck. If we told him a depression would happen sometime in the next century, he'd say, all right, I guess so. You never know. Less than five years away. And Jeff, you say, what do you say? You say that they did something terribly wrong. Bernanke agreed. I'm going to pull up the three graphs here, which I think show what went wrong. Well, Milton Friedman's point, and Milton and Friedman and Anna Schwartz, their their contention was that after the 1929 stock market collapse, that caused a monetary relapse, which the Federal Reserve, as a central bank, should have stepped in and provisioned enough liquidity that would have that would have interrupted that destructive monetary run before the deflationary consequences became really really truly flowered and became so destructive that they almost destroyed the economic system. And so you can see it right on the chart here, the blue, the blue bottom portion there is bank reserves. And what Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz said is, you look at 1929 to 1930, you don't see much of a change. And then in 1931, 
the level of bank reserves actually declined. And what the Federal Reserve at the time said was, well, there isn't any demand for money. Why would we supply it? Interest rates are falling. This is, you know, we, we don't need to step in. And they said, well, no, 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 you, you idiots. Don't you realize what you did? You let the monetary system relapse and then essentially collapse, which then led to all of the bank failures that further collapsed the entire banking system and therefore the lending and therefore the economy. So had the Fed acted toward the beginning, interrupted that, that liquidity squeeze by provisioning lots of bank reserves, then their argument was the Great Depression. It probably still would have been a pretty bad recession, but it never would have been a Great Depression. And that was the, the key error. And you can see it in the charts below if you want to scroll down a little bit. What really happened after, with, the, with no Federal Reserve as a backstop, the depository system simply collapsed because there wasn't enough there wasn't enough liquid cash in the system, and that's what really a central bank is supposed to do. In lieu of liquidity, actual money, cash, and currency, again, we're talking about currency elasticity, the Fed, the central bank is supposed to step in and act as an elasticity agent, and they didn't do that. So in the first graph that we're looking at is the Federal Reserve liabilities, cash, money. Let's call it just money broadly. Right. And... If you would have, looking at this chart, if you had no idea when the Great Depression began, you would have said 1934. Because between 1929 and 1933, there was little difference. I can't tell. It looks like the same level that it was in the early 1920s. There was no Great Depression there, at least according to how the Federal Reserve reacted. They didn't react until 1934. But if you look at all member bank liabilities, you see right from 1929 and all bank member bank liabilities, also money for the system, for the economy. You can't miss the depression, the, the shock, the liquidity, but they missed it somehow. Okay. Yeah. So and that's look at the great it, error. Compared to the 20, 1920 depression, as well as the 1937, 38 depression. It's, a, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's immense. It's absolutely immense. It's incomprehensible how big of a monetary decline it was. So when we say the federal reserve screwed up, it screwed up as, as big as it was, you know, you cannot possibly have made such a, a bigger error. What about assets? Is this confirmed and disconfirmed? Yeah, and that's, that's really the point. When, when, the, when the liquidity system started to contract, when, when depositors began to take liquid money outside of the system, when they began to claim gold and currency back from, from the banking system, without that provision from the Federal Reserve, banks had no choice but to liquidate assets. Obviously, they couldn't make loans. Not only could they not make more loans, they had to liquidate what loans and securities they had available just to pay off depositors who were taking money out of the system. And again, what Friedman and Schwartz said was, if they had recourse to the Fed, if the Fed had said, we'll take those loans off your hands, we'll, we'll provide bank reserves and all sorts of other things so that you don't run afoul of regulatory uh, reg state, like, state uh, federal regulations and things like that, that would have that would have at least interrupted the decline before the snowball got too big going down the hill. And would that have been the classic budget lender of last resort if that's what the Federal Reserve had done? Yeah, that's the idea. When there's a monetary shortage, what Walter Badgett said in Lombard Street is, look, it doesn't matter because money is a tool. Money is a vital tool. You need to lend freely, even if you do it at a penalty rate on good collateral, you're not actually, you're not subsidizing speculation, you're subsidizing the good parts of the system that are being overwhelmed by what they thought was, you know, emotion or depository irrationality or a you know, number of things. And even if it is, you know, uh, even if it is, you know, uh, there's rational reasons behind the deposit run or the bank run, then still the central bank's interest is limiting the damage from that before it becomes something like we saw in the 1930s. Because let's face it, there was nothing good about the 1930s. There was as much as, as bubbly as the 1920s have been, there was really no reason why the 1930s should have been so awful to balance it, to have balanced it out. In fact, they didn't balance it out. It went way too far. And so Badge's doctrine was, let's limit the damage as much as possible by being an actual central bank, which means currency elasticity. Friedman and Schwartz made that point, reminded central bankers about what Badgett said, that the Federal Reserve didn't fulfill their central banking role, and Ben Bernanke made the promise that he would. But here's a twist, Jeff. You tell us that Ben Bernanke, by the time he was making that promise, and Alan Greenspan already knew that they weren't 
a central bank. So how could he make that promise? Unscramble that for us. What did he know? (laughs) And how could he make that promise then? What did he know and when did he know it, right? (laughs) Wasn't that a decade earlier? Yeah, it was even more than that. I mean, look, the Federal Reserve Bank had said since the 1970s, this money supply stuff, we don't know. We can't figure this out. Something else is going on. And what happened was they said, well, maybe we don't need to. Maybe we don't need to know the details, the monetary details of what the banking system globally is doing. We'll just influence the behavior of banks and let them take care of all the small stuff. So we'll raise or lower the federal funds rate as we need, and that will signal to the banking system what we want them to do, and they'll take care of this elasticity or inelasticity stuff on our behalf. And up until the, the uh, 1990s, late 1990s, it seemed, it seemed to be working really well. And the central bankers, especially Alan, uh, Ben Bernanke at that time said, hey, we've got this nailed. <laughs> we don't need to do money. We'll just influence bank behavior and that'll take care of it. And it was Alan Greenspan actually, of all people who in the late 90s kept saying, I'm worried about this. You know, we're supposed to do money. We don't do money. And yeah, it's kind of working. And I love the fact that people think I'm a god. But, you know, deep down, I'm, I'm really worried if, if push comes to shove, we'll be able to perform like a central bank. And they had any number of discussions, as I can attest, having read through the transcripts of all of these meetings where these people were expressing doubts, especially in the wake of the Bank of Japan and quantitative easing debacle in the early part of that, that age, where they kept coming back to that same conclusion. If push comes to shove, will we really be able to influence bank behavior so that we can establish a, a, an elasticity regime during the worst types of crisis? So when Ben Bernanke told Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in November 2002, we won't do it again, he was in one sense lying to them. He didn't know they wouldn't be able to do it again. He was assuming that everything would continue to behave the way it had up until that point, even though everything in the monetary system had changed by then, long before that. And that was really the arrogance he displayed, and it continued to display. Subprime is contained. You know, all the other stuff that went on afterwards, even though no matter what the Federal Reserve did, the problem, the monetary problem, the elasticity problem was inside the banking system, which the Fed could not manage because all it ever did from the, really the 50s forward was influence behavior, not actually do, it was not actually a central bank. Thank you. This new doctrine incorporates the fact the Federal Reserve actually is not a central bank. What it may be, however, and the jury's still out, a marginal asset buyer, the market of last resort. QE and the QE and the like focus instead on bailing out markets impaired by the eruption of gross currency inelasticity for reasons left unexplored. Jeff, in part two, we're going to delve into some examples, really good detailed examples that reference that infographic I brought up in the beginning. And then in part three, we're going to close the loop and show what really happened as well as what the media narrative is regarding March 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part 2 of a discussion where we Ladies and gentlemen, this is the third time I've introduced the show and that is a limit. That is an unspoken limit. I'm not going to do any more retakes. We are talk we're doing a three-part series on why the Federal Reserve and other big central banks are not central banks, but they are markets of last resort. Please go see part one where we discussed, what did we discuss? We discussed the article, when you aren't actually a central bank, part one, the real inflation. Now we are moving on to part two, which is a real clear markets essay posted on the 28th of May. The Fed is the perpetual janitor cleaning up after itself. And what we're going to be discussing is a bunch of examples that lead to what happened in March 2020, because the Fed was given a lot of credit for rescuing the system. What happened in March 2020? We're going to build up towards that step by step. And Jeff, if you ask the mainstream orthodoxy, what happened in March 2020, they're going to say, well, the first thing that happened was that foreigners started to sell treasuries. And that's where we're going to turn to as our first example. If government finance minister A 
has commanded that its reserve manager X needs to liquidate U.S. Treasuries in the nation's reserve account post-haste, the lucrative relationship any primary dealer has enjoyed serving the reserve manager suddenly becomes fraught with, shall we say, potential difficulties. They can't just hang up on them like they might hang up on me when I say yeah, I'm it's, selling this. It's sort of the corollary to too many treasuries, except this time the dealers are getting stuck with treasuries that foreigners are selling to them. And that you're right, they can't say, well, no, I'm not gonna buy this from you because it would be that wouldn't be in my interest. But the foreigners, the reserve manager is going to say, "Look, we have this big, you know, big relationship that's 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 a huge revenue provider for you. If I'm going to sell you this treasure at the price I want, you're going to buy the damn thing and and like it." And of course, dealers, I'm, you know, that's really what a dealer is supposed to do. That's its job to begin with. So, you know, in a lot of ways, that's really that's really not that ab abnormally typical, because as we've been describing for years, foreigners have been selling treasuries in in varying amounts going back really to 2012, 2013, and 2014. So it's not something like this is sort of unusual. It's actually become a, a really common practice. And so what really was unusual about last year was the volume of sales and all of them happening at once. Now, Jeff, wait a minute. If I'm gonna sell my triple lever Tesla Bitcoin crypto FANG stocks, I just go and I sell it in the market. Every, I could, you know, click, click. Oh, yeah, wait a minute, market, what do you mean right? the market? <laughs> so U.S. Treasuries, I'm a reserve manager for a Nordic country, and I'm not going to sell my most valuable U.S. Treasuries, which may be the on-the-run ones. I'm going to sell this stuff that's uh, illiquid. I don't know what it's trading at. Jeff, people are asking, well, why doesn't the reserve manager of a Nordic country simply sell it into the market? Because it's the market with quotes? Yeah, it isn't a market, right? That's the distinction between on the possible? run and off the run. Off the run stuff is stuff that isn't really liquid. And when we look, we think of the treasury market as a single thing. Mm -hmm. It's a treasury market for every treasury that in existence. The biggest when, as we market. know, there's you know how many you know twenty some trillion in treasuries out there, mm -hmm. and only a fraction of them actually trade. Hmm. Most of them are just you know they're just held by pension funds and asset managers, as you said, reserve managers all over the world. And they don't need to trade. There's there's parts of the market that are liquid, and we derive the prices from them, and we assume that those prices apply to the illiquid stuff that doesn't trade. And that's mostly the case. I mean, during normal times, if a, if an asset manager wants to liquidate an uh, illiquid treasury, they won't really have any problem, by and large, because the dealer will step in and say, you know what, I'll buy that treasury from you, and I'll give you a decent price for it. I'll give you a market price for it. But it isn't really a market price. They're not selling into a market because the market doesn't exist. They're just assuming it does. And so the dealer steps in, and they become the market for the treasury. But then that creates a bit of a problem for the dealer. We talked about this in a previous episode. The next step is that the dealer sends cash to the reserve manager, but we talked about, it. is there anything that we need to add from this broad discussion regarding the fact that this kind of cash is not yet cash, that they may not have yeah, the, the cash, cash when they fungible, send it? Yeah, the cash is fungible, but you know, we, won't, we won't bother with that. We've, we've talked about that before. Okay, so it's not quite cash right away. It might be cash eventually by the end of the day. So it's they some form of credit. Some sort of, okay. Yeah. So, however, while the cash piece has been taken care of, that's hardly the end of the matter. Now the dealer is involuntarily, he's been composed, he's been, he or she has been compelled to put it on their balance sheet, this off the run, probably illiquid US treasury that contains some risk. What kind of risks are associated with US treasuries? Well, usually since it's off the run, it's gonna be a note or a bond. So it's a longer term instrument usually, which means it's, it's it's open to interest rate and inflation and growth risk and all those other types of things where if we get into a reflationary inflationary period, the value is going to fall. So that does, even though it's a U.S. Treasury risk-free quote-unquote asset, hmm. it does entail some some form of risk that the, I mean, this is not a treasury the dealer decided it wanted to own. It didn't go out in the market and buy it. This is something that it has come into possession of because of its dealer functions. That means it has to do something about mitigating these risks. They need to hedge this collateral. But you know At what, Jeff, least. before we go there, we're already way over time. 
when you were in class and your professor said this U.S. Treasury is risk-free, did that sit in your craw? Did it get stuck in your craw? Because it did for me. When I heard it, I said, this is wrong, risk-free. Whoever assumes it's risk, there needs to be an assumption for a risk-free asset. But, but surely they should have spent more time coming up with a, another option, another way of framing it. You can't go around in the financial world saying this is a risk-free asset. Am I crazy? No, you're, and it, it makes sense in, in a very narrow sense. Again, thinking back to Niels Bohr and all the other, you know, in a very limited sense, it makes sense because what we're saying by risk-free is it doesn't have credit risk. But that doesn't mean there aren't other forms of risk. And you're okay. right. What we should say is it's a benchmark. It's not yes. risk-free because it's it's obviously not free of all risk. It's simply a benchmark by which we, we peg Cre to the lack of credit risk as if the other types of risk, including liquidity risk, as we're going to focus in on are unimportant when in fact they are paramount it's free of nominal credit risk you know what i'm trying to say absolutely it's it's so many layers of risk get out of here it, it just yeah. always bothered me okay There's, but that's that's inherent into in economics is oversimplification of everything and nowhere has that been more more apparent than the monetary side where we're just again what we've just talked about Ben Bernanke's arrogance was that this is all really simple stuff. We don't need to pay attention to the details because the details aren't important. It's all really easy. So we can hedge this. We just got a U.S. Treasury. We didn't want it. We weren't expecting it. We had to take it because this Nordic country is a longtime business partner, and we're not going to stiff them this time. <laughs> this time. This time. Uh, we take it, but we don't want to be stuck with it because there's some sort of risk. So what do we do? We hedge. There's we uh, hedge several the different ways of hedging. What are some of them? What happens next? Well, you could get into, you could go into the uh, uh, treasury futures market if you want. You could do any number of other transactions. But let's just assume that the, see, the easiest, most simple way to do this is to short aid on the run treasury. Because then you're short the, the similar instrument of what you got on your book which means if the, the price of the off-the-run treasury note that you've taken in from the Nordic country falls in value, you're short an on-the-run treasury, which means it will, it will, it will go down. I mean, the, the, um, you'll, you'll, it, it balances out the transaction that you've got. But now aren't we in trouble a little bit because now we have to uh, find this? No, we're okay. Are we balanced? So now it's hedged. No, we're not totally balanced yet because okay, now we're well, short a treasury. Yes. <laughs> we owe a treasury what? to the marketplace. Yes. And so there's one more then? step here. Yes. Because we, we, we want to run a neutral book, at least that's what the textbooks say. We want to make sure everything balances out and we've got all our bases covered. There's still one base that is not covered, and that's we're short a treasury. And we can close out that short by engaging in a term reverse repo, which simply means that at some point, you know, we've sold the treasury short, we've got the cash. We can use that cash to, to lend into the marketplace on a collateralized basis, which means we've got cash going out. We've got cash coming in, cash going out, collateral going out, and collateral coming in. And so all of these things balance. We've got our risk covered because we're short of treasury that we got sold, we got that, that was sold to us we didn't want. We've got it hedged. We've got the cash all worked out. We've got the collateral all worked out, and all these things work in a nice, neat little package. That's why they're paid the big bucks. That's why we make movies about them, like Margin Call and The Wolf of Wall Street. Whew. And that's why, figuratively, one. they're the ones who are jumping out the windows when things go bad. <laughs> because it's always the stuff you can't predict where you, you realize that, yeah, this is hedge and all works nice and it's a nice, nice neat, tight little package. But when it doesn't work, boy, it doesn't work. And you know when it might not work? When it's not only... The, some Scandinavian country putting that security back to you, U.S. Treasury, sending it back to you, selling it to you. But you also get a phone call from the reserve manager of Poais and Zaire and what other country doesn't exist? But a lot of them, Czechoslovakia, and they all call you. And all those steps we went through, not only are you have to do that for more assets, but guess what? Other countries are calling other dealers, and it's a run for going through this whole cycle that we just explained. And what happens, Jeff, if uh, there's not enough on-the-run uh, securities, or if people don't want to take uh, the the you know off-the-run? What happens then? 
Well, remember, we said in the beginning, you know, in our last episode, we talked about daylight overdrafts and fun, you know, for funding the purchase, the original purchase from the reserve manager in the repo market. So we've got to remember that step here. And I don't think we mm. covered it just before. So oh, okay. we've bought the asset from the reserve manager. We funded that in the repo market. We've hedged it by shorting a treasury and then then uh, then hedged our short treasury position by a reverse repo. So we've got all our bases covered, we think, except for we've now used an off-the-run illiquid treasury as a collateral, or at least one piece of a collateral chain in repo financing. So if we start to get more phone calls from reserve managers overseas saying, I need to sell you my reserve treasuries, you're thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do? I'll buy it from you. But at the same time, am I going to be able to repo fund these transactions because they're illiquid? They're illiquid. And while you know most people don't care about the fact that there's no liquid market for it, the one place where they care more than anything is the repo market. And if the repo market starts to say, this stuff is illiquid and, and I don't like the way it looks and I'm not going to accept your off-the-run illiquid treasury to finance your purchase and repo, I need more collateral or I don't even want the thing at all, you're left to scramble with to finance what is essentially these unwanted and involuntary purchases from reserve managers. And one way to do that would be to just sell right into the market and create a fire sale. But that, I mean, exactly. But then you're, you're in the same position that the reserve manager is. There is no market, right? The, so, it, yeah, you could. You could sell the illiquid off-the-run treasury and hope that somebody would buy it, realizing that it's not going to be – I'm going to take a loss here. It's, it's going to be at a loss-creating a loss uh, creating transaction. And is that what happened in March of 2020? That's It that's, was one of the most we... prominent features of the panic. And it was not just March 2020. Let's go back to October 2008. The same thing happened. So this is a repeated phenomenon. It's not just one idiosyncratic thing. It's this thing happens repeatedly. And so last March, you had this curious case of a monetary global financial crisis where the prices of especially long-term treasury, remember the treasury 10-year yield rose and it rose precipitously during the worst of the crisis. And the reason was because you had all these reserve managers trying to put all of these uh, illiquid assets onto the books of dealers and dealers saying either I don't, I can't do it, leaving the reserve managers to sell them in the market or the reserve or the dealers taking some on a lot of these treasuries on, which they did, and then trying to sell them themselves in the secondary market because they couldn't arrange repo financing. And it was just an utter, complete mess. And it got to the point where, especially the off-the-run treasury market, became utterly and completely illiquid. Whatever limited liquidity had been in the off-the-run treasury market before then just completely vanished. It's from the outside perspective, what that looked like was, oh, my God, the treasury market, the treasury market has broken down. This is an awful thing that the treasury market has broken down. And who steps in but the Federal Reserve to save the day by essentially QE6 buying up these illiquid treasuries, market of last resort. The Fed steps in and Jay Powell's the hero. You know, what's surprising is that they actually talk about this. They usually don't, do they? But here's uh, you brought this out in your paper that on April 8th, 2020, they released the meeting minutes, which are very scrubbed and blasé and there's usually nothing in them but the, they released meeting minutes about their march 15th meeting and here's what they said it sounds like they're reading your work jeff in the treasury market following several consecutive days of deteriorating conditions market participants reported an acute decline in market liquidity a number of primary dealers found it especially difficult to make markets in off the run treasury securities how often do they mention off the run treasuries never right and reported that this segment of the market had ceased to function effectively this disruption in intermediation was attributed in part to sales of off-the-run treasury securities and flight to quality flows in the most liquid on-the-run treasury securities jeff hallelujah they know about it they know what's going on they read your work so what's the problem except they're looking at it as from the perspective as i said for at looking at it backwards from the end they look at it as this was a treasury market breakdown. We saved the treasury market. Because they bought Which, all QE6. They right, and that seems reasonable. And in fact, mm -hmm. most of the mainstream, especially the academics, have said, oh, yeah, that's market of last resort. Here it is. It worked really well. 
the Fed saved the day by bailing out the treasury market, which is supposed to be the creme de la creme of all financial marketplaces. And if that place was breaking down and the Fed saved it, tremendous job. Way to go, Jay Powell. You're a hero. And no, you, now you know why the Fed is talking about this, because they think it sheds positive light on everything that they have done. Look, we bailed out the treasury market. Here's what was wrong with it. Except, no, that's, that's not what really happened. That's what a market of last resort should do, okay? But it's not what a central bank should do, not one that- Yeah, because again, you, you, you're left think if you're actually thinking about this in any kind of detail, even anything more than the mainstream media article, what you're we, thinking is, wait a minute, why was everybody selling treasuries to begin with? Shouldn't that's we, part three. Shouldn't we ask that question? Don't you think that kind of important here? The treasury market broke down, but that's not the first step. That's kind of sort of the last, that's a symptom. That's not a, why was everybody selling in the first place? Let's, let's ask that question. Let's do that in part three. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third part of our very important series. Why are central banks, central banks in name only? Why do they more closely resemble janitors cleaning up after the mess? We're asking Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, we've gone through parts one, parts two, part three, and now we are going to be discussing this article, When You Aren't Actually a Central Bank, part two, The Stubborn Deflation. And I'm gonna pull up lovely infographic that you made. And this infographic is the mainstream media narrative, right? And then we'll get yeah. to what happened. Yeah, before we start, let's re let's review what a central bank is supposed to be. It's yes. supposed to be the, guy, the, 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 the agency, the institution that comes in and makes sure the crisis doesn't develop. You know, currency elasticity, something starts to develop. We see some, we see some liquidity problems in the monetary system. The central bank steps in right away. Everybody's happy. And if you if talk about the Montague Norman uh, doctrine, the Bank of England at that time, you know, 1930s, Nobody even knows the central bank even steps in. It just maintains monetary sufficiency at all times. That's what a central bank does. Lender of last resort. Now, this is the classic view, right? The Badgett and Montague, yes. did you just say? So this is the classic understood way of doing it. Because don't we sometimes hear central bankers saying, well, we shouldn't get in front of an asset bubble. Am I conflating two different things? Yeah, the asset bubbles and... don't even apply here. We're talking about monetary system, which is the market for money, not financial markets. Okay. And that's okay. another thing when we're talking about this transformation from lender of last resort to market of last resort. The Fed is even stepping out of the monetary system and paying more attention to asset markets than money, which again goes to the fact that it's not actually a central bank. So keep that in mind as we go forward. We, we talked about it in part one and got it back into in part two a little bit, what is the central bank actually supposed to do? It's supposed to stand in front of the crisis and say, I'm going to lend currency elasticity when the market is inelastic. Money when market, I mean first. money market. Market for money is inelastic, not the stock market, not uh, you know debt markets or things like that. All that is built on top of the money market. Yes, it's supposed Commodities, to currencies, assets, right. all that right. stuff comes off of money market and the central bank should be in the money market. But as we've talked hundreds of times already, uh, the Federal Reserve and many banks stopped doing money in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the private system took over. Jeff, gorgeous, wonderful, sophisticated infographic. I'm not, I'm teasing a little, but I love these infographics. Okay, so the mainstream narrative, here we go. Yes, yeah, so I'll go back to what we did in part two which was what actually happened last year in March, March, actually starting in February of 2020, we had a wave of foreign, foreign uh, reserve dealers selling their, their off-the-run U.S. treasuries, either in the marketplace or trying to dump them on the hands of dealers who were obliged to, to buy them. Part two. That supposedly clogged up the repo market. Remember, this is a mainstream narrative. Mm -hmm. Because of all of these, these uh, involuntarily purchased from the perspective of the dealers, they were involuntarily purchased, and usually those involuntary purchases are financed in the repo market. You have this sudden wave of off illiquid, off-the-run treasury collateral hitting the repo market all at once when the repo market was ill-suited or unable to handle that volume of, that essentially volume of emergency activity. 
number three. Of course, when the dealer, with if the repo market's plugged, dealers as well as reserve managers don't have much choice. What are they going to do? If you can't finance these sales that you've already you've already bought, then you have to sell the asset. You don't have any other recourse. So you have this wave of selling from dealers as well as reserve managers who weren't able to arrange any, weren't any able to find any dealers to take these illiquid treasuries off their hands. So you have waves of treasury market off the run selling going on. And as we talked about in the last part, there actually isn't a market for these things, at least a, a standing market for these things, which meant that these were increasingly distressed sales of actually illiquid, risk-free U.S. Treasury assets. You know, since 2008, the Federal Reserve hasn't been standing still, Jeff Snyder. They have been reviewing what happened, and they were prepared that should another financial crisis happen, they would be able to step in quickly. Instead of taking months, it would only take weeks. Part four. Yeah, that, 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 that's another episode we'll get into, the whole we're prepared and we're quickly and all that stuff. Remember, this didn't happen until March 15th, which was a Sunday, after a tremendous amount of destructivity had already taken place, before the Fed finally said that late on that Sunday evening, oh, we're going to do a QE6, which means, of course, which entails a, a buying a lot of U.S. Treasury securities. So from the perspective of Jay Powell and the FOMC, what they were doing was essentially bailing out this illiquid treasury market that had broken down, as we said, you know, the FOMC minutes declare that the uh, all function in that treasury market, the off the run part of it had essentially ceased to exist. So the Fed comes in, swoops in as Superman, takes all of these illiquid assets off the hands of dealers and reserve managers alike. And of course that means success, happy days, um, very limited fallout, Recovery, full recovery, markets, all everything. It was just everything was a complete and utter success. And they say that unicorns aren't real. Hmm. Okay, so then. This what... is the market of last resort. And yes. as the market of last resort doctrine, of course, the mainstream focus has been on only those last two parts of it where the Fed steps in and starts buying lots of illiquid treasuries. And that's all we really know, right? The treasury market broke down and the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell saved it just in the nick of time before it got even worse than it might have been. And that's really a repeat of what happened in 2008 when the Fed came in finally at the end, December of 20, 2008 into 2009 and said this basically the same thing. Markets have broken down and we've stepped in to start buying assets in these illiquid marketplaces market of last resort doctrine maybe it broke down because there were too many treasuries jeff and the u.s government was too profligate and in depth i'm not gonna i'm not i'm teasing you I'm, we don't have to get into no that. and that's fine that's this is a corollary to that argument the I, that the treasury market itself can't handle this volume mm -hmm. of this potential volume of securities and of course as we as we ended part two with there's that nagging little question in the back of your mind that says well, wait a minute jay why was everybody selling treasuries in the first place? I get, you know, the treasury market broke down, but that kind of seems like it's toward the end of the process, not the entire process or even the beginning of the process to begin with, right? Something, we're missing something here. Yeah, okay, the treasury market broke down, but why did it break down? Why was there so much selling in the first place? And so now this is the euro dollar perspective. Yeah, let's We're look gonna... at this realistically. <laughs> There's no rainbows and unicorns here because obviously anybody who remembers March of 2020 and its aftermath is not going to credit the Federal Reserve with doing a very good job because one thing after, just like 2008, one thing after another, whatever the Fed did, nothing seemed to stop the crisis, including their heroic purchase of treasuries. Because remember, they announced it on the 15th. There's still another week of liquidation sweeping across the world. So it wasn't really that they bailed out the treasury market. They just happened to coincide their beginning of their purchases with towards the end of the liquidation waves. Jeff, let me just step in for a second. Uh, earlier, you said QE6. And if anyone is watching this video and they don't watch it often, uh, this is the first time they've seen it, I'm worried that they may say, Jeff Snyder's a crazy person because this would be QE4. 
uh, we've gone over this a number of times. Just because the Federal Reserve doesn't announce a QE doesn't mean they didn't do a new QE. And so we had QE4 in 2012. December 2012, yep. And then That was QE... distinct from QE3, which was announced in September of 2012. Yep. So there's two QEs at the end of 2012. And then we had the not QE from right. October 2019. October 2019, yep, that was not QE, but it really was, except it was extremely, it was focused entirely on treasury bills, which we already had an episode on that where we showed that was a ridiculous folly too. So it that just, was Q, that's what we call QE5, because it was legitimately QE5. And so March of 2020, when the Fed stopped buying treasury bills, tacitly admiss, admitting they had screwed up in treasury bills, they started this QE6, which was very different buying especially these off-the-run treasuries forget the forgive the digression jeff it just occurred to me that i was worried i was just worried that somebody would turn off the channel if they heard qe6 and that's not mainstream approved okay so uh what happened then what's number two now so if we're looking at this realistically what actually happened last year was yes there was a wave of reserve managers selling their illiquid treasuries but that's not what quote unquote clogged the repo market. The repo market had already been impaired. And so the wave of selling and off the run treasuries was coincident to repo market impairment. In fact, it contributed to what was already taking place. It was one of those things that becomes self-reinforcing where you have one problem on top of another problem becomes an even bigger problem. So it wasn't that the foreign selling and dealers trying to finance that foreign selling and repo impaired repo, those things happened simultaneously. And in fact, there's a great deal of data as I've gone through many, you know, you can look, read all the stuff on our website from February on into March of 2020. You can see there's a great deal of evidence that the repo market actually was impaired before the wave of foreign selling started, which goes back to why were they selling in the first place? But either way, these things happen simultaneously. Foreigners start selling these treasuries. Dealers have enormous problems financing those sales. They start selling them into the illiquid marketplace. Foreigners start dumping them into the liquid marketplace. So then we have the off-the-run part of the treasury market goes haywire, where everybody then herds on into the on-the-run stuff because that's the only things left usable in the repo market, as the FOMC actually admitted in their, their FOMC minutes that we talked about in part two. So you don't have the treasury market, quote unquote, the treasury market breakdown. You have part of the treasury market breakdown and curiously an important part of the treasury market that didn't break down and continue to function because of reasons that have everything to do with everything. <laughs> well, so should... Jay Powell steps yes. in. <laughs> yes. He doesn't bail out the treasury market, does he? He just starts buying the off the run stuff that is causing that that's that's causing all these problems in the off the run part of the treasury market while the on the run treasury market is all that's left of uh, essentially functionable repo and that's why we had this you know multi week period no matter what the fed did where you had the dollar surge you have all these waves of liquidations that even reached the stock market and everything else because liquidity, monetary sufficiency throughout the global system just completely vanished because, because of all of these other things that happened the first time, predating the quote-unquote breakdown in the treasury market. Jay Powell and QE6 didn't save the day. It was simply their reaction as this market of last resort doctrine to all these other things that happened before then. And what we're really talking about is, obviously, why that treasury market selling overseas became or started into in the first place why did the repo market start to become impaired before that even happened and before the fed even comes in at the end what was going on at the at the front what was going on at the beginning and that's where we get into euro dollar dollar shortage that became so severe and so acute that it created so many downstream problems it actually got the mainstream and Jay Powell thinking the entire treasury market was blowing up when in fact that was simply a consequence of what happened before then. Now a central bank, a legitimate real central bank would care about that stuff at the front. But this, we don't have a central bank. We have the Federal Reserve, which is sort of like, as I said, a janitor who comes in at the end, this market of last resort doctrine and says, well, I'll start to clean up the mess because the mess has gotten so big, I can't ignore it anymore. I'm going to have to clean up a little bit. 
And that's not what you, you know, that's not what you're taught in school. That's not what financial markets expect out of the Federal Reserve or the central bank because they still consider the central bank a central bank. But here we see in practice, that is not what these people do. And again, as I said before, this isn't just about March 2020. The same things happened in 2008, almost identically. And it's, it's really, it's one of those things where you have to say, wait a minute, what the hell's going on here? How can we 13 years later still have the same problems? And part of the reason is because these people get away with saying, oh, this market of last resort doctrine works really well. Don't ask any questions about what we do because we know what we do and we know what we do works well. And it's just simply not true. Again, you have to you have to put you have to look at the entire phenomenon together and piece all put all these parts in the right order and start to realize that what really went wrong happened way before the Federal Reserve ever ste stepped in with its market last resort. And where it went wrong was where a central bank, as Milton Friedman was promised by Ben Bernanke in 2002, where a central bank would have said, we won't allow this to happen again. Would it be fair for me to include the European Central Bank in 2011 and 12 and the People's Bank of China in 2014 through 16 as similarly being not central banks for those regional euro dollar crises? Yeah, I would. The European Central Bank is very much like the Fed. In fact, they're, they're very similar. The Bank of Japan is a little bit different, but yes, I think that they're in the same category. I would put the People's Bank of China in a different category because their monetary system is somewhat different, okay. where the, the People's Bank of China is still involved in actually printing currency, for example, they have physical currency. So okay. they have more of a central bank element to their doctrine, but yet they're still trying to, to, to migrate toward the Western view of this market of last resort doctrine, which is simply a response to the fact, the fact that these are not central banks. And if you're not a central bank who, who is engaged in currency elasticity, what do you do? And that's really where this market of last resort doctrine comes in. It's basically say, well, we can't prevent the monetary problem from starting. So we'll just kind of hope at the end we can sweep up the debt, the mess after it's or after it's destroyed a bunch of stuff. And that's where the janitor analogy comes in, because that's what the Fed actually is actually telling you. We don't prevent crisis anymore. We don't prevent monetary problems. We just try to limit the damage after they've already developed into full, 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 uh, full scale conflagrations in all of these marketplaces. And we've seen it now twice in just 13 years. So I would say any reasonable and honest interpretation of events and the, the evaluation of this doctrine, it doesn't work very well. Now, we, 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 don't, we haven't yet tallied up the costs of last year, but we have an idea so far of what's going on in the, in the marketplace, and it's not all about COVID and pandemics. It's really about economic, long-run economic harm that so far over the last, especially couple of months, is starting to look way, way too much like 2009 and 2010 and the lack of recovery from the last time this market of last resort janitor stuff didn't actually do much uh, in response to what should have been the central bank's first primary task. You end this article by pointing out that this is not just an academic exercise, that it has real world consequences for us, the people just going to work and trying to make it through the day and the week. Assuming because... you have a job left. <laughs> That's the... No, we That's pay right. the price for this. And I think people should know that the central bank is in, in, its, in its actual function is telling you that it's not a central bank, that we do something very different. And that very different means something that all of these, these negative implications, they're going to continue to repeat because the monetary system, as we've said, we say repeatedly, broke down in August of 2007. Here we are approaching 14 years later and the same problems, even exact identical problem, collateral shortage, all of these things continue to repeat because there's no demand. I mean, central bankers, they don't feel any of this stuff. It doesn't apply to them. The costs are not borne by them. They have they they get their high paid sign cures after they retire and all these other things. I mean, they're not suffering for any of this stuff. It's everybody else that does. And the reason we are, which is our mission here at Eurodollar University, is to connect all of these dots to show you that hey, the central bank isn't a central bank, and here's we'll prove it to you. We'll show you what they actually do, and it's not what a central bank does. And that's how we end up in the situation where we have uh, an entire generation of young people turning to Marxism.
because they think, well, if this is a booming economy and a functioning central bank, it ain't very good. Let's try something else. The consequences radiate outward from the eruptions, from the worst of the moment, worst moment of the crisis, because our modern economy runs on credit, on banks expanding their balance sheets, and it had for a long time. But guess what? If we've gone through two, three, four of these episodes now, the banks know they're on their own. Risk perceptions. Okay, the crisis has passed, but I have just seen for the third or fourth time that my central bank won't come in during the percolating stages of the crisis, but at the very end. Dare I step out into the open and take on risk? Not enthusiastically. And therefore, that credit doesn't reach the rest of the economy, and we all suffer for it. There's a, there's a great bullion famine, a great dollar shortage, a great euro dollar shortage. Again, great, great collateral famine. Think about, you know, in the wake of last year, why are treasury bill prices so high? Why is it that, that, that even now when everything's supposed to be functioning well, and really everything is functioning relatively well, why is there still this tremendous uh, demand, this tremendous, there's this tremendous uh, desire to hold on to on-the-run treasuries? Why is, there, why is that still a distinction here? And the answer is because, as you just said, Emil, banks know, push comes to shove, what this market of last resort, pardon my language, horseshit, actually <laughs> accomplishes. It doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to. It doesn't accomplish which is, what's on people's mind. And the fact that they applaud themselves and get the mainstream media to applaud their efforts is a big part of the problem. Because this is what this is what maintains the system as it is. This is what maintains this market of last resort doctrine, even though it's not suited to what the the task that we we believe the central bank has been assigned, which again means it's not a central bank. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you do read these three articles. They're fantastic. I think this is one of our most important episodes that we've done. I hope it's the most popular. I hope you read it. I hope you you absorb this amazing what crystallization of what has happened to our central banks and and the consequences that we're going to be facing going forward. Jeff, when I upload these podcasts, there's a little checkmark box that says, "Does this contain explicit content?" And I always waver. If you throw in one expletive, I, I don't know how stringent they're going to be. Are they going to come back for that last comment and harass us? I don't know. If they do, I think it's. I think in this case it's warranted. I think at this, you know, I try not to use badge of a, honor, too then. many expletives, but I think you know it, that's what's 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 really deserved here. You're welcome to use as many expletives as you want. That'll make it clear to me. Yes, check the box. But if you just throw in the one. <laughs> All right, Jeff, awesome, wonderful. I love that. I really do. I hope the audience reads these articles. I hope they enjoy the show. Thank you, Jeff, for putting this out, sharing it with us. And uh, have a good day. I'll talk to you again soon. All right, Emil, take care. <laughs>